The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Over the years, this program has been, and continues to be, about how we reconnect and coexist with nature, rebuilding balance and inclusiveness of a tremendous variety of communities, whether they be in your backyard or one that is far, far away from your everyday experiences. The communities highlighted here on Our Wild World are those that live with a wide range of wildlife and under very different circumstances that our American comforts and accessibility typically do not include. That being said, that doesn't mean we can't find these or similar comforts elsewhere and feel safe, because we can, as long as we are willing to keep an open mind, accept that there are differences and challenges, and have a spirit of adventure while keeping an open mind when things don't go our way. My guest today, Calvin Cotter, has learned this firsthand from a young boy to the premier community conservationist he is now, from the old hunting safari days to working with his neighbors, while at the same time introducing visitors to an idea of Africa from the old days, but make no mistake, it is very much happening in the realm of today in a shifting world. Although modeled from the glory days and the adventurous spirit of the 1920s, Cotter's Camp is so much more. From multi-award winning programs and services, Calvin and his staff have also incorporated modern needs and Maasai culture to bring about an integrated woven tapestry of what a conservation model can be for us, the visitors, but also for the locals who live on the land in their world, which is rapidly changing as well, incurring demands for a consumer lifestyle style, and a host of new pressures on both wildlife and people. Welcome, Calvin. Thank you, Ellie. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you here. Um, I was fortunate to stay at your camp a few years back, and uh, it was a, a fabulous day. I've been wanting to get back ever since. And I was just recently reminded of uh, what an incredible place and ecosystem your camp is in and what you've helped to shape when a friend handed me a recent copy of WSJ, the Wall Street Journal magazine, where throughout that Kishu, Kenya, is the backdrop. 
and although I found the juxtaposition of the fashionista and glamorous New York-style photo spread a tad out of context and amusing, the article on you, the camp, and your accomplishments is the highlight and well worth the read. So, listeners, go pick that magazine up, WSJ Magazine, and read the article on Calvin. And I enjoyed it so much that I immediately contacted you to be a guest on this program. So here we are. Um, <laughs> if When our folks, listeners, read that magazine or look on the web to cotters.com, and that's the website for the camp, you'll find a whole lot of history. And you can follow them on Facebook, I believe, and on Twitter, and all sorts of social media and networks, but you've got to go visit. So, Calvin, give us just a little background of how a boy from Oklahoma ended up to live and stay in Kenya. Thank you, Ellie. Uh, yes, we were lucky to get uh, into WSJ, um, and it comes from a need for knowledge. Uh, our family goes back to four generations. 1909, we arrived in, in Africa, in Kenya, from Oklahoma, as you say. Uh, we, we are actually um, three generations in, in the USA before we came out here. So we're pretty early days in the U.S. as well. Uh, so, so we we basically came out on the hunting on the hunting um, avenue. My great grandfather loved loved hunting, and he had read Teddy Roosevelt's uh, book Game Trails in Africa, and he just dropped everything, came out with his three sons and six daughters, and we've been doing wildlife ever since. That's amazing. That's amazing. And nowadays we can look back at Teddy Roosevelt's book and go. Oh my goodness, you know, a great idea, passion for wildlife, but look what it started. It started a killing spree, and one that still continues today, at least in the U.S. in terms of our wildlife services. So how did you and your family deal with that idea of the hunting, and let's call it sustainable utilization, and we know that the landscape where you are has changed since your father's time. And even since you started Cotter's Camp, we know there's been a steep decline in wildlife populations. But how bad is it? Yes, uh, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, but there are very, very bright lights shining uh, of examples that we can extrapolate and build out onto the rest of it. So I'll explain. Um, one, one of the issues is, okay, we're losing wildlife at 4%, between 33 and 4% per year, but there, there's studies being run, done right now to actually give us a final figure on that. And there are little uh, um, blips in this as well, in that elephants in Kenya are still stable, whereas everything else is crashing. Um, however, the biggest problem we have in Kenya, uh, of course we're in Kenya, um, in the, near the Maasai Mara, is that uh, land use change is changing so rapidly. We're going towards agriculture, and pop- human population growth is also increasing very, very rapidly at up to 10%, which is extraordinary, but it is true. It is really happening. So where where are these elephants, uh, 20,000 elephants, going to live? The elephants that actually are not living in the protected areas or that the populations are too big for the protected areas? And, of course, it's on communal land and private land. And didn't didn't this land... In terms of the protected areas, there's reserves, there's protected areas, there's national parks, and they all are have different land use management policies. And Kenya did come up with a new wildlife land use wildlife plan a few years ago that's been undergoing modifications ever since. So the question was, how has this changed? And it used to have buffer zones around the national parks and the reserves. There weren't so many people. 
And now there's so many people putting pressure <clears throat> on these boundaries, and it's creating a competition for resources that wasn't, I'm not going to say was never there before, but has really brought it to the fore. So what are the costs of living with wildlife? The costs are very high for people who um, remember that these are poor people that can only live off that land. They can't go to a city at the moment and live off some some other way of life, a, uh, an urban way of life. So they have to live off that land. And while wildlife is not contributing towards that livelihood income, then wildlife has to be removed. And there's studies that show that wildlife can be so costly on other land uses, up to 66% loss of income or productivity. And this can be from baboons, bush pigs, quailia birds, elephants, uh, lions eating cattle. All of this is combining into that between 30 and 66% loss of productivity. So the, the question is, we have to value, or do we have to value wildlife for it to justify its existence? And the answer is a clear yes. Research is showing the latest research with lions all over Africa shows that the, the only way we can secure lions is when the communities see a reason to keep it, and that is a financial incentive or benefit. Now, there are other landowners who are rich enough or who have, you know, can afford or have emotional reasons to keep wildlife, and that is a different story. That is okay. That, that, that wildlife is protected on their land. The, the issue is the vast majority of wildlife is on very poor people's land, and we have to address their needs. And the only way we can do this is valuing the wildlife. Okay, so this leads me to sort of a two-part question. One is, what are we doing wrong at the moment that is not helping the locals benefit and move conservation forward? And then two, what are we doing? And, um, well, and we're going to get into that in the body of this conversation. But part of it is that the locals live in a very different lifestyle than we here in the West. We have a hard time even wrapping our mind around living out there with lions and elephants walking wherever they will, let's say between our one block walk to the 7-Eleven. You say it's not there. So let's start with what are some of the things that we're doing wrong? And then I would really like to get further into the if wildlife pays for itself and what that sure. means and how it pays for itself. So let's start with what we're doing wrong. So, well, what, what uh, conservationists are doing wrong and all the rhetoric and what, what you hear about is focusing on single species and single, single issues. So right now I can say the ivory trade or xenophobic anti-Chinese just because they value ivory in a different way or the rhino horn trade or it could be any, any single species issue. That is the problem. What we have to focus on is to to get local communities to see natural biodiversity of all its, of what that is in that area. In some areas, there's no elephants, but there's uh, other species. Well, it's all valuable. We've got to find a way to make natural biodiversity the preferred land use for millions of poor people in Africa, Southeast Asia, and, and South America as well. And how do we do this? And this is the challenge we have. Um, so that's number one, too much focus on the wrong things. And we're talking about billions of dollars is not getting to where it needs to get to. It it's, should be going to leasing land, in my view, payment for ecosystem services, that sort of thing. It is all going to other things, which is anti-people activities, like anti-poaching, 
anti, you know, all of these things don't really help if the very people on the ground don't want wildlife because it is not contributing to their income. And the question is, and we'll come into that, do we need to kill wildlife to make it valuable? Is tourism enough to justify and pay communities for wildlife? We'll go into this shortly. So that that brings me to a little point. It's a little sidetrack. Maasai never used wildlife. They didn't eat it. They didn't kill it. They lived with it. So when did this shift happen? Let's talk along a timeline. Did it happen over the past 100 years, 30 years? Mm. Um, When did it happen that we began to value the wildlife in Africa more than the people? Great question. So Africans, including Maasai, have always used wildlife. Um, don't, Don't believe that. There is a cultural thing, and that is about peer advantage over their other tribal surrounds or the surrounding tribes that they don't use wildlife. But there's always been this time when all the cows died that they would resort to eating buffaloes, et cetera, et cetera. The issue is uh, actually um, when the when the colonial uh, powers came into Africa, they imposed the feudal wildlife law, the royal game laws, which were developed in Europe for a whole different purpose. And that was about land ownership and monopoly by a few landed gentry or the royalty. That's why it's called royal game laws. Now, in Africa, that was that, that translated into state ownership. And at independence, it exactly the same system has carried on. And so in Kenya, we have, um, and most of uh, Western, Central, and East Africa, we have this wildlife regime, state ownership of wildlife. And this allows funneling a monopoly of power and money around wildlife use by non-landowners and government. So the issue is, uh, you know, okay, has that been good or bad? And the answer has been it's terrible because local people have been disenfranchised from their wildlife, which of course, all cost of wildlife is to the local people where the wildlife lives. It, you know, we can't say, oh, um, oh, they should keep it for the rest of humanity or future generations because actually it kills them. It actually is a direct impact. So they have no choice but to remove it. And this is a function of a communal or communist asset in a capitalist country. We know what's happened to communism in the rest of the world. It doesn't work. It's got to be privatized for it to have a value for people to see it in another way. And that's where it comes from. But this just fired up in my head. But capitalism, we've seen it run amok into, and turn into a consumer-based society here in the West, mm. specifically in the United States. And we're passing this off, consumerism. And as you'd said, uh, with the colonial input in Kenya, it changed the system. So now mm. we see... And and Kenya and a lot of Africa did not take on much of the colonial aspect in terms of their lifestyles. They didn't start wearing Western clothes, and they didn't start Mm -hmm. wanting imported foods. But Mm -hmm. it did impact their relationship with the wildlife. They could no longer benefit from it. But now we have a more consumer-based local African society. So you say that we should value animals. And how does this actually work out on the ground? Does it turn into commodification, industrialization? How does this, if it pays, it stays, actually work? Is it dollar bills with faces on them, or are there other translations? 
Great. Um, there's the traditional way, which is where an animal is owned and, co- and commoditized. And that is the, it's exactly what happens in America with deer or uh, in England with pheasants or anywhere in the world. Um, a landowner has the rights to it, to the use of it, and he can sell it and trade it. And the results of this has been the Southern African model of conservation. And many people shout and scream and don't like it, but they're the ones that have gone from half a million head of game in 1976 to 23-plus million head of game today. Um, They're the ones, only through commoditization, where rhinos have gone from 400 in early 70s to 20,000 today. And it is because of this privatized ownership model. I mean, a buffalo was sold for 11 million US dollars the other day between two from one private landowner to another. So so this is one model and it has its problems. It is only possible in a place that has governance, that respects governance. It has many, many prerequisites. And so unfortunately in most of Africa, it probably is not going to work properly. But right now, right now in Namibia and South Africa and, and some parts of of uh, let's say uh, other parts of South Africa, it is it is working and admirably so. Now the other model, and I'm going to come to the the biggest problem with hunting and sustainable use in a second, which is going to wipe all of that good work out in in a minute. Um, and but first, I'll go into the second way of valuing wildlife, and that is through valuing wildlife by proxy of land. And this means basically if you have wildlife on the land, it has value. The land has value. And that means someone has to come in with an idea of, well, it's got wildlife. I'm going to lease it for more than if it's got maize or monoculture domestic animals on it. And this is the, the, the new possibility for wildlife conservation to secure corridors between, um, you know, overcome, over um socially compressed areas with elephant or other species to connect them with other areas that have less. Well, you could just do corridors, lease corridors. This is the sort of model we're looking at in the Masai Mara Wildlife Conservancies Association where where we work. And we've evolved it over a period of 15 years to be a very fine-tuned, corrupt-free, extremely effective mechanism. But it does take a lot of money. It takes a lot of money to pay landowners the opportunity cost for not doing maize and not fencing and living in an appropriate way to accept wildlife. In, this is Maasai included, by the way, who would rather see it in under cattle, but they've accepted that this is a better way for them. Now, the danger with uh, the, of the successes gained in the South with the hunting model uh, or the commoditization model is that um, it is uh, it is under threat by the rhetoric of the animal rights movements, the very strong anti anti use lobbies in the West who are closing down markets for hunting, etc. So you're already seeing in the last two years, four hundred thousand hectares has ma- been made unavailable to rhinos. I, I hope you understand that that means I rhinos do. have had I to do. be moved. Yes. If you could help. Just fill that out a little bit more because this is where it brings in privatization, people mm-hmm. with money to buy the land, to manage the land, and to pay for the other associated benefits from keeping wildlife on the land. And then Correct. this can go two ways, you know, as you'd said, um, industrializing it. And South Africa mm-hmm. has regained a lot of its wildlife, 
but I'm going to throw this one in there. Does that mean we should once again focus on single species, rhino and elephant, and create a trade in rhino horn and a trade in ivory? Mm -hmm. Hasn't that also shown to not work? Oh, I, I believe economic law rules. Nothing is, is, is exempted from economic law. And I believe that, uh, you know, the Chinese have a 5,000-year history or the Asians have a 5,000-year history of valuing such a, such a commodity. And I think there's no time to be arguing against the people who actually have the most money in the world. Um, and I believe that ultimately, if... If people want to not have a rhino trade or rhino or, or a rhino horn trade or an ivory trade, we have to get more money on the land through PES so that more people on the ground want rhinos and elephants and they get a more a higher value for having rhinos and elephants on their land. And the value is not the Chinese commodity value. The value is the value of not having or just paying being paid more than maize and wheat and, co and domestic animals. So we have to look at it in a bigger perspective. It is not about rhino horn. Uh, by the way, I, I personally believe, and I've seen it, I've been in this game a long time, that uh, any banning of any commodity does not change what happens. It depends on where people are in the hierarchy of needs. And you cannot uh, shame or name such people who live off this stuff. This is all they know. Um, you, I can tell you now that there, there are animals being killed in Kenya in areas, not because of the product like meat or ivory, but because they're not wanted, because they themselves have no value to the many, many poor people down there. Now, if they're lucky enough to capture it and put the, they kill it, they, they spear it, maybe it's raiding their maize, it goes and dies nearby in a forest, they pull out the ivory, they put it in a hole, and they'll wait for a rainy day when they can actually sell it. So there's hundreds of tons already in the ground just waiting to be sold. And when the price goes up to 10 times what it is, exactly following what happened with the rhino horn 10 years ago, that is when it'll start appearing. And it doesn't matter what you do to try to stop it. That You cannot kill people continually for wildlife. And ultimately, yes, a lot of money comes down to the ground through the poaching industry. It is not just about all of it staying with the Chinese and the middlemen. No, it's read about the Mozambique story where the guys who do rhino horn, uh, they, they get a lot of money down into their communities. They, they're replacing government. So we must not d deny that this is the factor. And um, all I can say is there's a better way to approach this. If you use collective benefit and liability control mechanisms through the PES model of leasing land, you can control or they can control individuals who are then stealing from them. Right now, it seems like rhinos and elephants are the white man's thing. And we only make up 6% of the world's population. These people have no interest in rhinos and lions when it kills them and eats their food. Well said. Well said. So you've just really helped us understand what utilization means. We use everything and you've just helped us understand is how we're going to use it and how we're going to balance that out so that the poorest people on the earth who are the ones that happen to be directly living with these commodities, wildlife, do benefit. And it, somewhere along the line, it turns into dollar bills with faces on them that are used in a modern commercial trade. 
Correct, exactly. And uh, the question we have to ask ourselves, it's not about wildlife. It's about people. It's about people. And how do these people on the ground, how do they want to live their lives in the future? And the idea is that, you know, a Western, Western-centric uh, thoughts of Africa is that, well, you know, we shouldn't be trying to change people in Africa to live like us. Or the assumption is that they want to remain, you know, living out there in under the under the rain with no raincoat and no no roof. In fact, sometimes, uh, no. Uh, everyone wants to join our modern economy, right? And yet, be proud of their traditions and cultures, like the Maasai. What we're offering them through the through our leasing of land model is actually continuing their traditions. Let's look at it this way: if they are subdividing the land and doing maize and fencing it off and farming and fragmenting it, there is no Maasai left. They'll speak the language, but they'll have no large landscapes with cattle. There'll be no uh, walking with the spear and defending themselves against lions and whatever. But this way, doing the the large uh, landscape-sized conservancies, we will be giving them the space. We'll be doing cattle on the Alan Sayre model of cattle management, combining with wildlife, we, we're giving them the opportunity to be proud of their heritage, but they're living in central central villages or areas that have all the facilities they need. They no not longer need to walk 10 kilometers to school through elephants and risk their lives when they go to school because the school will be 200 meters away. They, they no longer um, have to rely on, on growing their food. In fact, what we're doing is we're bringing them into, into the urbanized way of life because of natural biodiversity existing, not at the cost of it, which is the way it happened in all of the developed worlds. You're talking about the US, you're talking about Europe before that. Becoming urbanized was at the cost of the natural habitat of the areas they lived in to put monocultures, usually subsistence um, uh, monocultures, and then commercialized concentrated monocultures, which are much more efficient, which of course is the way you have it in the US now and Europe now. So that is why you have rewilding in the U.S. and the and Europe. You've got a lot more space. You've got a lot of people, dense populations, but you've got a lot more space for rewilding going on. So we're trying to shortcut this process by doing leasing of land. You make a really, really good argument. I spend a lot of time talking with people on the opposite side of this, this coin that we're talking about today. At the same time, this brings another question to my head. Are we going to be seeing strip malls and little urbanized centers across Africa like we see here as it sprawls out of our urban areas or is there a way through this um, new model and Mm. ways of looking at conservation and wildlife will that automatically sort of be prohibited because of the geography and the lack of being able to put electricity absolutely everywhere. Oh, I think we're dealing with, uh, we, we have extremely intelligent people like you and I and any American who are going to latch on to technology and make it work. So all we have to do, in my view, is, is let them run with it. They will find the best way forward for themselves. And that is possibly sometimes going to be a strip mall here and there. There are, there are solar, um, solar farms that can be developed just for villages. Uh, they're already existing. They're already being, being put in, in some areas here. Um, M-Pesa, the, the way we can keep money from being corrupted is through direct payments through a Kenyan-developed uh, uh, phone banking system called M-Pesa. It's extraordinarily successful. Um, I would say we don't have to worry about that because 
Kenyans and Africans will develop the way they, the way they want to develop and the way they should develop. It is for us to give them a better option. What is what has dropped through the cracks in this whole story is is that this is not this is not um, keeping elephants for a bunch of white folks who are across the Atlantic Ocean. This is about actually yourselves. You guys keep wildlife because it's valuable to you as well. But at the moment, because because they're mostly extremely poor, they don't know where they're going to get their food from from for tonight, for this evening, or tomorrow. That they have no choice for the luxury of of um, risk or or there's no buffering there. They can't accept elephants and rhinos just run running around their land when it could kill their kid or eat all their crops. So there's a lot of aggression and it is for them to decide where they want to keep it. It is for us to give them that option. And this, the biggest weakness of the PES model is where's the money going to come from? If, if we don't have um, the NGOs putting, prioritizing their money into PES instead of other things. And if we don't have tourism being restructured so that uh, it gets out of, uh, secure national parks and reserves. That is the problem, of course, is that uh, most tourism is in national parks and reserves, which make up only 8% of the land area. And, well, that only has 30% of our wildlife in it. So where should tourism be? It should be outside. And the governments should be looking after the, the budgeting or the funding of of their national parks. That That should be funded by taxing the wealthy, urban, and industrial manufacturing complex. Tourism should be outside leasing land on a on a ratio of say 600 acres per room. It'll be different in different areas, but that is the way we could get money down to the communities. Exactly what we are doing in the Maasai Mara Wildlife Conservancies Association, and that is the model I'd recommend governments look at uh, using tourism better for conservation and for their people. Frankly. This has been fabulous, and I have a whole lot of questions, and we have a lot more to, to discuss. But right now, sure. we're going to step away for a short break. So, listeners, stick with us. Uh, please visit cotters.com to learn more about the camp itself and Calvin's history and the area where Cotter's 1920s camp uh, resides. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E 
www.thepowerofprayer.org. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World with my guest, Calvin Cotter. During the first half of this program, you really need to tune in, and if you missed it live, then come back and listen to it on demand. Once, uh, by the end of the day, it will be there, and share this with your friends, because we're having a conversation that um, definitely supports the utilization of land, land use, and wildlife that works in a way that the local people who live with it benefit. We talked about the differences in our lifestyle here in the West and the spaces that we have, urbanization, industrialization, and commodification of of our resources. And in Africa, that includes, by necessity, wildlife and the local people. And we've talked about that conservation is about people, and that is a running thread throughout this program. For if we don't get involved, nothing's going to happen, and it is conservation working together is about people coming together to find a way forward to sustain our resources which is our planet calvin you had mentioned a term p-e-s could you um literally tell us what that stands for uh yes ellie it means payment for ecosystem services okay and and the the thing is that it was always used more in the context of water and water towers it was a kind of a narrow narrowed down term but what we have done is spread it out to just mean leasing land for any natural resources to secure any natural resources leasing the land paying the landowners for for whoever's paying to control the use of that land in that it is not removed and that what this usually means like in the mara model where we live is that we when we take on the user rights of of that land we are basically, okay, we'll pay, let's say, $50 a hectare a year, and that gives us the right for, for, for us to keep it grassland, wildlife, etc. But we also run Maasai cattle under managed program. So they also, their value is always cattle. So it meets their values systems as well. The interesting structure we're looking at is basically when, when an organization comes in and leases land, PES, they actually have the rights to use any resources on there. So in an area that has hunting, uh, you could easily, or, or forest use, or it could be carbon, for example, carbon uh, sequestration. Uh, basically, it's the responsibility of that organization to come and uh, uh, use, use it as long as it is absolutely uh, um, sustainable. Although manipulation of species can happen, like in any, any area that has hunting. Or management, you're going to need management of of numbers. The key for this whole thing is that there's enough money being leased to the to the landowners that it is more than worth their while to have that land in that condition to be secured for for natural biodiversity. And it doesn't mean that they're just pushed off. They they're living in urban centres, but they are usually brought in to work in the in the conservancy. In fact, 
all the workers are conservancy workers or the management are, are from the local area. It's not like they're being they're being paid basically to do what they would probably do anyway in a few years when they knew, understood the value of the wildlife anyway. So we're not talking about a colonizing model here at all. I, I really want our listeners to understand yes. that. What we are talking about is people of one culture, the West, who does care about wildlife because we mm-hmm. want to see it, and working with a local culture, those who have to live with it, and it needs they need to benefit from it because it's their land. So um, yes. you'd, we'd started and touched briefly on the first half, where the money comes from. So this is where the NGOs and government and business actually mm-hmm. has to come into work. So the first world ends up paying the price for PES. Yes. Because we have the money to do so. And we want the wildlife. We want to be able to go and stay at a place like Cotter's 1920s camp, which is absolutely stunning. Look it up, folks. You'll want to go there tonight, and you'll never want (laughs) to leave. And um, so we want to be able to enjoy, with all our modern conveniences and comforts, a, a safari in Africa for a couple of weeks or a month, and we want to do it in a variety of ways, whether we want a bush camp and tent or we want um, high-end services, which is what Cotter's Camp can offer. So this is partly where the money comes from. So it leads into a question is in terms of monopolizing tourism and bringing tourism in. This is a way to utilize land, benefit the local people, and how does that work? How, do, how does that yes. end up functioning? So, yes, it's a, it's a good point um, because we grew into this. I must say we came into this um, uh, from the position of investors and, you know, pretty self-interested. We didn't really understand historically the implications of royal game law and that we were the monopolizers and the poor, poorer rural people were not getting the money. So what, we, what my dad has done and what we've always – I followed in his footsteps was to build on community land and try to create some kind of value, but we didn't do PES. We did other things. We did, we, we paid, did employment. We did a leopard blind where we'd bait a leopard and they would come in, we'd pay the community. We did schools, this and that, but none of those are direct enough and equate directly to the behavior on the land. Let's say poaching or overuse or whatever with what money they were getting. So PES is a very direct way. So the way it works is, on our on our conservancy, we agree on a fifty dollars a hectare a year. If a poacher or if a, an illegal grazing herd comes in, we are actually going to pay six thousand people, slightly less, and they've agreed on this for that one infraction. They might all get five shillings less at the at the quarterly payment um, event. And they'll ask, well, why are we getting less money? Well, their own committee who's working with us will have already found the individual who's done the, the, the infraction and will have fined him. And in fact, in their own bylaws, the fines within to their own people is five times what our deduction is. So they're calculating that they might get, you know, one or two people to actually pay the fine because they're responsible to pay the balance that is deducted to the people. It creates, and it's very, very um, African culture uh, friendly. It's pretty much uh, collective liability works in, in many, many African cultures, and it taps right into that. They understand. So it becomes village-level control. Likewise, when there's a new species in there, we will consider increasing the total payment. 
So we've agreed on a per hectare per year rate. We pay every quarterly. We either go up or down depending on behavior on the land. It means we have less management costs. We just have to monitor and do uh, an accounting procedure. That's how it works there. And tourism is simply a mechanism. Like I have a lodge in our conservancy. We just allocate $100 hundred dollars a client a night towards the conservancy lease fee and management our problem is that tourism is so concentrated in the mara reserve and national parks 95 percent plus are are in government parks that out of all of these lodges on the mara there's over 240 only 30 of us are leasing land and it's a thousand square kilometers that we are leasing so what we need is the rest of them to come out and lease land with us and we have some proposals to to make that happen. Well, I do anyway. So you're talking about uh, ways that listeners who have some money somewhere could invest in conservation and see a return on their investment while still maintaining the integrity of the ecosystem and the um, paid-for ecosystem services, which sure. everybody understands. Without the services, our Earth gives us water air, forestry, all those things, then Correct. we don't survive. So this ties it all together. Conservation is about people. It is about creating new models because we've seen what doesn't work. And we have to find a way forward that does work in a capitalistic, and I love that word, collective mm-hmm. liability. So you're talking more about a contract with mm-hmm. verification measures, stringent rules, bylaws and everybody has to adhere to this not just the locals it's not something being implemented upon them but it is something that joins you all together in a common goal oh absolutely as it took me uh, eight years to negotiate this with the people and it's to make sure that all people are involved um, and the bottom line is, uh, it, it is it does work but we have challenges because uh, you know when there's when there's a crash in tourism because of external forces, uh, and it happens in many countries, then we we actually, us, the, the lodge owners who have actually done the leases with the Maasai, we, we, we have to go and borrow money to go and pay the leases because we committed ourselves. And what we need really is an underwriting process by the NGOs or by whoever so that actually our businesses – which, which mostly fund everything, don't go under because of our commitment. You see, the Maasai, they have no time frame. If we don't pay the leases that we agreed to, they might give us two months and say, you know, we give you two months, otherwise we, we put the fences in. That is how quickly wildlife can be taken out. Is a fence goes in, that is it. The poison goes in. And by the way, by law, it's perfectly acceptable to kill wildlife if it is affecting you as a landlord, landowner's um, livelihood or life, you're allowed to kill it as long as you don't use it. So it's a, it's a small step away for them to just say, you know what, you've broken your word, bang. So the importance of this whole story is uh, financial sustainability and underwriting. And there are mechanisms. I mean, I think for, for your listeners, one of the best things or most important things to understand is that it to do a donation for this sort of thing, it can be a 501c3 uh, tax refundable thing. Um, it is actually a really effective mechanism to make a difference. So 
look for the NGOs that actually can do that, that publicize that they lease land. That's the key. They've got to be saying they're leasing land. They're not hiding it in in other things, you know, management or this. It's got to be, I, we lease land. And that is PES working for you. And that's, that's an excellent point because speaking of the Maasai Mara, over the past decade, <clears throat> there's been an explosion of lodges with the uh, boutique tourist camp kind of idea of offering where the camp is a lot more important sometimes than the area and the wildlife that the tourist Mm -hmm. ostensibly went to go see. They end up spending a lot more time in a high-quality spa-like services hotel Mm -hmm. out there in the bush, which is wonderful. Um, It creates a wonderful holiday setting, but it's still very important to get out there and see the ecosystem that this camp is setting in. Calvin, you said a very good thing there. The tourist, the donor, needs to have their due diligence, and they need to be responsible for where they're going to put their money, their hard-earned dollars into making it go further, better bang for the buck by investing, donating, visiting uh, a camp that works under a model that functions within the community. So you had said a minute ago, when tourism crashes due to other forces, how does this model maintain the continuum when tourists don't come? Well, this has been our biggest challenge um, because, uh, and often PES is not taken seriously by the big conservationists um, and you know their names. So uh, the answer to this is we have to create new models. We have to think out of the box and let's go right back. You know, we've got to think of uh, a new, we've got to do a paradigm shift in conservation thinking. We've got to think much bigger than this. In my view, we've got to change the relationship between the rich developed world and the and the developing world here, and this is going to be basically connected with the sustainable development goals, tax refunds for private sector to lease land, and this private sector leasing land amounts to be used for their nation's sustainable development goals commitment to pay 0.7 percent of the of their GDP to the developing world, and there are all sorts of benefits for the developing world to achieve that. I'm not an economist or a specialist in that. All I know is that there are opportunities and and we have to look outside the box. And that is one avenue. Um, Another avenue is simply tourism. Tourism can either voluntarily be more responsible, but there's already so much invested where they are. Hundreds of millions of shillings and dollars, in fact, um, invested inside national parks. That is not going to happen. It's not going to move. They are not going to move themselves. I'm proposing a land rating scheme where guests can actually look at which lodges are securing most land per room and choose those ones rather than the ones that are not securing any land. And as I go back, I go back to my original comment, national parks and reserves are not under threat. They will not be turned to maize tomorrow. They will not be subdivided. So that does not count. If a lodge is inside a reserve, it is it is in fact an extractive uh, element. Yes, the, the, jo- the, the jobs are appreciated, but if the lodge was outside, there would still be jobs. Um, the multiplier effect of tourism is very important. If they were still outside, there would still be a multiplier effect in the economy. What is the key is that should should government be funding or, or taxing the urban wealthy and the industrial management uh, uh, complex to to fund that 8% of the country. And I would say that is the best way forward or get bilateral aid to do that. Tourism should move out. And any lodges within, if they're part of that land rating scheme, 
they need to charge more for the privilege of being inside a national park or reserve and use that extra money to lease land outside so that they actually qualify in the land rating scheme. And this is something we've been just looking at uh, doing. This is fascinating because no matter which way you slice it, when you talk and all the thing, all the questions that come up where you go, but, 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 it always comes back to PES and the land. So what you're doing is really talking about a land use model that benefits everybody, private ent- enterprise, uh, NGOs, and the people who have to live there. And you've just told us that this will not harm the National Park and Reserve System. Actually, it might take some of the pressure off as we have seen the Mara has become an explosion of people. And last time I was there, it's harder and harder to see wildlife because um, the pressure around it, as we talked about earlier, is driving wildlife further and further away. And if you've only got a week or so and you want to see the big five, which Calvin and I would both recommend spending more time and watching all the little five and all the relationships between the animals and looking at this holistic system and why it works because it's still there. But what we're highlighting is the possibilities to keep it there and move forward as Calvin and I both say out of the box thinking and new models. We talked about the national parks and the the reserves and bringing up private land to be as beneficial and as, I'm not going to use the word pristine, but as loaded with wildlife and culture and history as the national parks, right? Well, yes. Um, it, it'll always have, uh, private land will always have some element of use and management uh, that the, the parks will have uh, differently. What I'm saying doesn't mean that tourism doesn't go into on a daily or camping basis into the park. Um, I'm saying that tourism should continue to go in there, but the developments should come out. Uh, if they do remain in there, they should have to pay an, a, a much higher fee to be in there, and that goes out, yes. Um, I would say that um, there'll be different models of conservancy, and some of them, like in Namibia, they do something similar, but it's all based on hunting um, with very little tourism, and in other places, it's based on carbon, like the wildlife works. It's a similar model. They, they pay to keep the, the land um, um, from being converted into farmlands or goats. Um, and that's all based on carbon, carbon credits. Um, there are many models, but the key is PES, pay, finding a way to commoditize or to make money for the local people. And without that, we lose it all, frankly. So, so I, I understand this, but I can hear somebody saying, well, if we're making more money off PES, how do we ensure that it does get delivered, stream out, flow out to the people that are, truly need this benefit, this cash flow to yes, live perfect. their lifestyles? So it's, it's complex. What we're talking about is complex. It's a possible new model to solve the wildlife crisis. And you've promoted some and talked about a lot of ideas like Wildlife Works. And then there's Big Life that, have, that are mm-hmm. all doing new ways of thinking and working with the local communities. I've got some notes here, and you talk mm-hmm. about SDGs. Can you help us yeah. understand what that is a little? Sure. Um, just just um, before the SDGs, uh, we'll go back to the, the uh, corruption of the, of the payments, just because yeah. that, that's actually yeah. something we've worked mostly on. And that is through this M-Pesa direct phone banking system. So what we've developed in the Mara is a system whereby we know who owns what exactly, 
And in some areas, they own individual plots, and they've, co- they've created conservation cooperatives. In other areas like where we are, it is still one plot of land, and they each have an equal share. Well, all we do, we, we do not funnel the money. We pay it directly to every individual by his phone bank, his phone banking system, M-Pesa. And this makes it basically corruption-free. You don't get corruption because they're getting what they expect, and they know the deal. That's it's excellent. extraordinarily, yeah, it's extraordinarily successful. Um, okay, the SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, it used to be called a, a Millennium Development Goals and it expired uh, a year ago and it was replaced by the Sustainable Development Goals. It used to be only focusing on human, human needs and the MDGs was only focusing on human needs like uh, water, uh, uh, sanitation, education, blah, blah. But the SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, it's a UN program, and all countries of the world have signed on to this, uh, is basically uh, incorporating uh, environment as well. And this has opened up the doors to such methodologies as, as a p- payment for ecosystem services to achieve all of those other human needs. So when a landowner gets a regular payment from a payment for PES, from a lease, what are they going to do with that money? They're going to do all the things that the that the world wants them to do. They look at their food security, their housing security, their education, their water, etc. They do all of that themselves because these are intelligent people. Now the SDGs um, they require twenty, I think it's twenty six nations of the world to pay zero point seven percent of their GDPs into the developing world, and then they get um, some tariff, uh, trade tariff advantages between them. Whoever, whichever those countries achieve it, and I think only one country has ever achieved it. I think it was Denmark, maybe a few years ago. I, I don't have the exact data on that. But the bottom line is, if countries achieve it, it could change their trade with between them radically and worth billions of dollars. But this means that it's got to not be government to government. The problem was it was too government to government. And it was, the projects were so large, they, there was no way the money could be spent down here. The capacity in Africa to actually deal with that kind of money and that kind of, it just was lacking and it all, and it failed and it got corrupted because it's funneled. The money was funneled. This is what I understand anyway. So now the SDG is doing it through this direct methodology through, through private co- companies from those developed world countries, doing it directly on the land. That is securing carbon, natural biodiversity, um, that now being put against the SDG. And remember that money going to leasing also goes into all of those things that we're talking about, water, sanitation, uh, uh, housing, etc. On the on the land. That, that is what people do with that money. And we've got evidence right there in the Mara to prove it. Well, it That's it, what happens. It, it, it is. It, it absolutely is. And it's interesting that we went from Millennium Development Goals, sort of lofty ideas, but it's leaving out a critical aspect, which you just brought up, which is the land we have to live on, this little blue ball mm-hmm. floating in space. There's only so much of it. So you brought up a word capacity and capacity building. This is what we're looking at on a large scale scope, thinking on a much higher level versus capacity of the land to carry so many elephants, capacity of the land to carry so many cattle. When you look at it from a sustainable development goal and the, the PES system, it actually organically limits itself to the capacity that the land can hold. 
Mm-hmm. Um, what mm-hmm. are some of the other things that you would like us to understand about what the model and how you're working? Sure. Um, basically, it is about uh, relationships and building relationships with the local people. But once once they understand it, it goes like wildfire and everyone around us want to have the same thing. Um, I can say that the uh, CODIS uh, Wildlife Conservation Trust is, is our own little trust and we work with many partners, the Maasai Mara Wildlife Conservancy Association, um, the Kenya Wildlife Conservancies Association. These are all organizations that promote this idea of PES or leasing land for wildlife. Um, and me, I'm, I'm of course, uh, I've gone beyond a lot of that localized discussion to try to bring a, an Africa-wide uh, um, perspective to it, I- even in this discussion. Um, but that's what I do, I guess. Well, it's, and, what, ha- uh, it's what has to happen. I mean, yeah. d- uh, replicableness, if Replicable. that's a word. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it is, we, I think. If we can't <laughs> duplicate it elsewhere and fine-tune the, the odd differences here and there, then what's the point? We have, exactly. We, we have island uh, conservation spots that... W- work beautifully as long as you stay inside the so-called fence even if it's an exactly. imaginary fence but if we can't duplicate it and spread it across entire continents and the entire world then we're not reaching our sustainable development goals so exactly i, I we have a couple minutes but i i need to ask one question the statement once they understand it so it's mm-hmm. kind of an us and them thing. We know Africans are highly intelligent. They've gotten along long before we're there. They've survived so many wars, colonialism, extraction uh, policies, exploitative policies by the mm-hmm. rest of the world. So what is it that's holding Africans back from understanding? Well, it's about culture and it's about trust. And if you look at the wildlife story, what have I just said? It's been entirely extractive. Um, it, you know, in every way, in, from the hunting to the tourism to the wildlife NGOs, nothing gets down to the ground. They don't believe anything. The government has given them rights three or four times in the history, and it's been taken away. So actually, that's what they don't trust. They don't trust. So uh, what we're saying is, when, when once they understand it, is actually the trust being being built up. And the good thing with this model is private sector to private sector. It's just a contract between people. It, Almost wildlife doesn't need to be mentioned. I'm just leasing your land. Oh, if you pay the lease, and this is what we've got to do, it's that simple. Is it that simple? Yes, it's that simple. Okay, that's it. And once it does take many years because they, they, they are also fighting the concept of I own that cow. It's my whole life. And the land is communal. You see? Mm-hmm. Now, in the modern era, it is about, in, it's about privatized land ownership. And that's the way it's going in Kenya and most of the world. And, and everything on it is yours, except for wildlife. Remember what I said? Uh-huh. Now, what we're saying is actually, um, you know, it might be privatized uh, a land, but you're going to cobble it together into a cooperative. You imagine that negotiation of thousands of people for thousands of acres. Then we're going to have the wildlife on there, which we don't own, but we'll only pay you if it's there, by the way, uh, because we, we have no reason to pay for it otherwise. Um, then you're going to have the, the wildlife go transit, transiting across all of your land at different times. And therefore, we've completely turned the table around that the wildlife is transient and the land is owned. It's a whole, everything is different with this model. 
Um, Absolutely. It's, it's, it is simple and it's elegant. Yeah. And yeah. you've proven that it does work. And so have many other NGOs that are following similar paths, slightly different yes. ideas, same planet, different worlds, but the world is changing. So exactly. you mentioned two key things that we all can learn from this conversation today. Working together and trust. We seem to have lost that ability over the last few dec decades, and that's where we need to be. So yeah. unfortunately, today we're out of time. This has been a fabulous conversation, and I'd like our listeners to walk away from today understanding we need to build as a, a unified Earth system and a global community uh, our capacity to coexist with each other and to trust each other and our responsibility and due diligence in finding out the best way to do that. I think that kind of sums up our Calvin's uh, model and our conversation today. So, Calvin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Ellie. I've appreciated it. It's been a fabulous conversation, and I look forward to seeing you soon. So step out there and think about our wildness and what we need to do to keep it there. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. <laughs>